Well, so glad that you were each here today. This is uh, Easter, obviously, Resurrection Sunday, and man, we're excited. Lots of great things going on this morning before we really dive in and celebrate the uh, resurrection uh, through the Word. I want to share a couple of things we're celebrating at Vintage. Uh, number one, uh, as of this past Tuesday morning, about nine o'clock, we offered the youth position at Vintage to Logan Johnson, who said immediately, yes, I would like to do that. And so we have officially uh, come to terms with Logan Johnson, our new youth pastor. We're excited about that. Uh, you can clap for that. It's been a, um, it's been a long journey and just we've, man, he, he has been over-interviewed uh, by, by our search team, our executive leadership team. He came and met with our staff. He met with our youth leaders. And uh, yeah, so we're excited. He will be here next Sunday night, April 8th. And so I invite you, all of our youth, to be here for that. This is the first opportunity to really get to know and connect with Logan. And uh, so please make that happen. We are excited. And uh, I would just ask this as we move forward. Please be in prayer for Logan. Obviously, there's a big shift for him. Uh, be in prayer for our youth as in they're shifting into a youth pastor. And just pray for Vintage as a whole. That it would just be a beautiful, beautiful, you know, hand-in-glove type moment and uh, be great. Second thing we're excited about is if uh, you're new at Vintage, you may not know this, but literally about a year ago, right a year ago, we purchased 48 acres of land off of Cedar Crest Road. And we've been talking about it almost every week for the last three months. And so just to, kind of rem- just to give a heads up, we, we purchased 48, but it was one of those we actually paid for eight and the guy gifted us the other 40, right? Just a massive gift. And and so we've been, man, we see this as a real movement of God. And man, it's like, honestly, more than we anticipated, we're expecting. Uh, we've been praying for 20 and God gave us 48. So what do you do? Thank you, Jesus. You win, right? Always. And so anyway, so we've been talking about what do we do with this? And and so we invited for the last three months, we've just been talking to our vintage family hey, we would love, here's the vision, here's what we're going after, and we would love for you to come alongside and financially invest into this also. And so we ask people, pray into this and, and about what God would have you do as a two-year commitment. So the past couple of weeks, we turned in these commitment cards, and so this is our quote-unquote reveal Sunday. Uh, and so where we landed, so we were shooting for a million dollars, and we still are, up to right now, because we had a commitment card to come in, last service. I don't know how much it was because I don't know how much people are giving, but we're somewhere a little over $850,000 out of a million dollars that we're, yes, fantastic. And um, and let me just say this again, uh, I'm excited because of some of the stories of the sacrifice that people are making, the real ownership of the vision, uh, that gets me excited. Numbers are fantastic and all, they really are. But what really excites me, is, and those of you who know me, this is true, like I, I've been undone, emotionally undone by some of the stories of people who are making sacrifices and I'm just like, oh God, are you sure, <laughs> right? Uh, but man, it is. It's like God's moving, we're excited. And so over the upcoming couple of years, we'll be telling some, those stories, people's stories as they want to tell them. Uh, but here's what I'm asking you to do moving forward. I'm just asking you to pray. Uh, we're obviously taking big steps now, big steps into taking what, this, this, what you guys have committed, and that'll be coming in the next couple of years. And to be honest with you, like the, this part over here we've been going the last several of months, I mean, it's been great. But the piece I, I look at and go, all right, Jesus, I'm very sober in, is, all right, what do we do next, God? Like, what are the, we have these vision pieces that we're going after, and we're excited about them. But the practicals, Lord, and the partnerships with people and the things that we're doing, we're asking for wisdom. And so I'm just inviting you as the church to come alongside. 
all of everybody else and say, all right, God, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us strategic partnerships? Would you give us the right people to connect with, Lord, who can ultimately help bring about the vision that, uh, that you have started here at Vintage, you've created? So with that, if you have not given yet, again, this is for Vintage Family. If you've not had a chance to give yet and you're, or to make, get a commitment card and you're still waiting and praying, that is fine. Take your time. Uh, I would just say this. You can do one of two things. You can just give, you know, put it in the offering basket, fold it up type stuff, where you can stick it right here in that uh, metal basket or metal box next to Jay's head uh, right there. And uh, you can just put it in there. Or if you want to, you can just kind of cut, you can come in on a Sunday and push it underneath April's desk. If you walk into our offices, first door on the right, just put it face down so no one else knows what's going on. Again, I, I have no idea how much you're giving. So you could tell me you gave like a thousand dollars would be great. Right? I just trust you and believe you and it'd be great. But no, seriously, just pray into what God is doing in this. And we're believing God for great things at Vintage. And I hope you are too. All right. So let's dive in this morning. It is Resurrection Sunday. It's about Jesus, who Laura has painted this morning. And so we're excited about this work. And the idea of resurrection is this. Again, like I said earlier, man, we come to Easter and you have a choice. Like, yeah, Easter. Yeah. All right. Easter story. Yeah. It's great. Jesus, resurrection. Yeah. That's awesome. Way to go, Jesus. I'm so proud of you. Thumbs up. Two thumbs up, Jesus, right? And we can have those moments. Honestly, we can. We can come in like, been there, done that, right? Had the t-shirt, heard the story before. Because the reality is we're, the story is always being told. In fact, we, we tell it in some form or fashion almost every Sunday. Who Jesus is, the reality of why he came in his life. But let's just be honest. People all over the world are like, eh, Jesus, or mm, Jesus, and when we come into resurrection, there are lots of responses to it. And this morning, we're going we're gonna to look into some of these responses. We're going to look at how we handle the resurrection. And let me begin just by saying this in the context of the resurrection. The resurrection is the most important event that's ever ha- happened in the history of humanity. And you have to, and here's the deal, if you've never really processed it, now's the time. Because one of the questions that I heard C.S. Lewis and I read about years ago, he said, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? And I would say this morning, what are you going to do with the resurrection? The resurrection is more historically accurate than all sorts of other things we study in history. There is historical evidence behind it. We're going to look at some of these things this morning. What I want you to do is I want you to hear the story of the resurrection, the story of Jesus a little bit. But I want you to hear the the story of the resurrection. I want you to hear the arguments made against it. I want you to hear the defense of why it is true. And at the end of it, if you're a believer in Jesus and we get to the end of resurrection, and talking about the resurrection, you have to then ask yourself, as a follower of Jesus, you've been saved since you, can, you can't even remember. You have to ask yourself, am I living every day in the truth and the power and the reality of the resurrection and what it means for me and what it means for me to do alongside of Jesus? He didn't just resurrect so that you could go to heaven someday and spend the rest of your life doing what you want to do. No, he was resurrected to save you so that you could then go give yourself to the world. And what are we doing with that? What are we doing with the resurrection if we don't know Jesus? Maybe you're antagonistic with the faith. That's fine. Jesus is not antagonistic with you. Don't worry. He loves you. He's wooing you. It's why you're here this morning. It's crazy. 
And we're going to talk this morning about the resurrection and what it means and why it's important. And that is going to, at the, end of the, at the end of the time, I'm just going to ask you to ask Jesus, what do I do with you? And what do I do with the resurrection? Because it has to be looked at. So, with that, let's begin by looking at the short story of Jesus. This is called the Christ hymn. It's taken from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Little, little knowledge. Paul didn't write this, the Christ hymn. It was already in place in the church long before Paul ever wrote it down, right? So in a sense, like, you, like it's a statement of faith. It's something that all the churches in the region would have already been using, already been stating, already be using in the context of their gatherings, stating this as they gather, whether it was just praying it, speaking it, whatever they did with it, right? Someone would speak it, they would, like this is being told. So when you would go to a gathering of Christians, in the early times, right after the death of Jesus, the churches would have already taken this instituted and made it part of their community. And so all Paul is doing here at the Christ hymn in Philippians chapter 2 is he's just writing it down, what everyone's already heard, because this is what everyone in the church understood and believed about Jesus. We're talking like 10 A.D., Okay. Maybe Ada, I don't really know the exact date, I, I apologize, but it's somewhere between like the death of Jesus and like 15 AD, this has been established. So here it is. Paul speaking, says, in your relationship with one another, here's a story of Jesus, most distinct in all of scripture. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Verse 6, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather... He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So the three primary things we see about the, the person of Jesus, number one is that Jesus is God. That's what we're affirming. The very first thing that Paul is affirming, the early church affirmed in this very, very quick AD after Jesus died, right? Number one is that Jesus is God, verse 6. That's the first thing. And so the idea is that every single believer believes, yes, Jesus is God. The second thing we see, the story of Jesus, he became a human, not as a king, right, but as a servant, so the second thing, Jesus became human. He was God. He looked down, saw humanity, saw our brokenness, saw your sin, those moments of willful disobedience, living opposed to God's will. We're just disobedient children, right? He says, ah, I see that. And you can't save yourself from that sin. You can't save yourself from this obedience because it's so strong. So I will come and break its power. And then I'll take this void that's between us and this like void between us, between God and humanity, and I will make a way for us to have a relationship, right? So he became human, and then he died. That's what we see in verse 8. So the story of Jesus. Jesus is God. He became human. He died a sinner's death. And then we know the rest of the story, resurrection. And so Paul doesn't talk about it here, but he continues on in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the earliest writing in the New Testament about the resurrection. It's written between 15 and 20 A.D., okay? 
This is the very first thing ever written to, to affirm the resurrection in the context of the church. Now, we know everyone believed in the resurrection. How do we know that? Because, like, 45 days after the resurrection of Jesus, Peter is preaching at Pentecost with the resurrection from the dead. Right? So it's something that everyone was believing, okay? So 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8, the first expression in the New Testament about the resurrection. Paul says, all right, guys, now what I received from other people, right, from the apostles, I'm going to pass on to you, but first importance, this is the most, up, this is the utmost, most important thing that you need to know. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's just Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And listen, most of them are still living. I just want you to just know that. Those some have died, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So Paul comes in and continues the story. Jesus is God. Jesus became a human being. Jesus died, and then Jesus resurrected. The story continues, but not yet into Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is sent. That's really important. It's part of the good news of Jesus. But we're still on the resurrection, guys, right? And so in the resurrection, the most important event in all the history, listen, and it is the linchpin. It is the key. It is the most important reality of the Christian faith. Because without it, the Christian faith is dead and useless. How do we know this? Well, Paul tells us, continue on in verse 13 and 14, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Listen, guys, if there is no resurrection of the dead... And not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. There's no reason to believe. There's no reason to call yourself a Christian. It's pointless if he hasn't been raised. There are lots of people who were born. There are lots of people who died. There were lots of Messiah figures who were born, and lots of Messiah figures who died. Jesus is the only one who was resurrected. It separates him from all of the others. The, the resurrection, it is the difference, honestly, between Christianity and every other world religion. If you've taken your religion classes in high school or in college, like you recognize there's lots of world religions. The oldest is Hinduism, then Judaism. You have Christianity, right? Like all of these, you're these ancient, ancient religions. No other religion in the world speaks of a Savior who came to earth, died, and was resurrected. Buddhism is philosophy. People call it a religion. The reality is, Buddha is still dead. And in Islam, there's the prophet Muhammad, and he's still dead. Hinduism has reincarnation, but no resurrection. Christianity is the only religion that speaks about God coming to earth as a man, prophesy, prophesying his own death and resurrection, and then dying, and then being resurrected. There's something that happens. Like tomorrow, if I said to you guys, I have this word about your life, and you don't really trust me or believe it. So, well, let me tell you, just to, just to prove, hear this, just to prove this, tomorrow I'm going to die. And then I want you to, I want you just to, I want you to, listen, after three days, then I'm going to like all of a sudden appear in your living room just to give credibility to my words. You're like, whatever, right? And then the next day I die, I went, 
<laughs> right? That's crazy talk. And then all of a sudden I was raised back to life. Would you believe me? Yes. That's what we're getting at here. That's what we're getting at. It is the difference. And so two statements. Here's the deal. The word, listen, hear this, please. Let's just press pause. Coffee talk real quick like we're sitting across each other. Here's the deal. This is important. You can't just brush it over and say, oh, yeah, it's history. History is alive. History is real. The resurrection is real. And if we all of a sudden go, if you pray this prayer, I dare you to pray this. I mean, I literally dare you. Jesus. Not, to, not yet, stuff. Perhaps you can pray now if you want to. You can pray now if you want. You know, even though I'm going to say you trust me too much. Jesus, make the truth of the resurrection come alive to me this year in Jesus' name. Amen. Because if you do that and pursue it, then all of a sudden everything changes. I dare you. Like, I literally dare you. If, listen, if it doesn't change your life, I will buy you a car. Tim Parker goes, hmm. <laughs> I pick out the car. I'm just saying, okay? No, it doesn't change your life. I'll buy you a car out of my own money. Seriously. Because it will change you. I'm that confident in Jesus. So, there you go, Kevin. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate that. I got support right here. I mean, right here. Mm-mm. Now, so let's talk about these two things about the resurrection. There's lots of things to say about the resurrection this morning, right? We can talk about a lot of things, but there's two primary things I want to name this morning among hundreds of thousands, right? Number one, if Jesus, this is important, if Jesus died but was resurrected, then he truly is God. If Jesus died but was resurrected, then he truly is God. It's important to recognize. It's important to recognize how those in Jesus' day, how they would have handled his resurrection. Simply stated, if Jesus were truly resurrected, they, they would have been compelled to believe everything that he said. Like I just said a second ago, if I tell you all this stuff and it's I'm going to die and resurrect, and then I come back and deliver and say, hey, I'm back, right? And you literally watched me stop breathing. You literally watched me, my heartbeat go away. And all of a sudden, instead of delivering, what would happen? You would believe me. You go, what else do you have to say about my life, right? You would believe. And so in this day and age, that's what happened. If Jesus was resurrected, they would have felt compelled to believe everything that he said about himself and about himself being God. Jesus told everyone that he would die. Jesus told everyone who resurrected, Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and be raised on the third day. Like, just press pause. Like, you know, like, people say you can't use the Bible to make an argument about the Bible, but here's the great thing about the Bible. There are lots of things that atheistic theologians will come back and tell you, no, this is legitimate and accurate to the history of Judaism and the life of Christ. This would be one of those things. They would say, you can't wash this one away. He actually said and said that, right? And so Jesus said this. He, he's going to die. He's going to resurrect, 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 excuse me. 
Then Jesus claimed to be God in his own words, John 10, 30. He says, I and the Father, I and the Father are one. Then it goes on in verse 31. The Pharisees were ready to kill Jesus. Why? Because he claimed to be equal with God. And so Jesus said, I am God, which I don't know, but I'll just be honest with you. Was it? Who was telling us? Our neighbor told us the other day about, about Jesus Christ who broke into pizza. Y'all seen that story? Jesus Christ broke into the pizza hut this week and called the police to let him know that he broke in and stole a pizza. And they go, who are you? He goes, I'm Jesus. What's your last name? Christ. All right? It's like, and where'd you come from? Heaven. Don't you know who I am? Right? I stole a pizza. I was hungry. Right? No, it's like, that's crazy. Someone who says they're Jesus Christ, do you believe them? No. Why? Because you're smart. You're not stupid. If I said, I am God, you like, take this guy down and get him off the stage. Jesus claimed to be God. He said, and to make that point, I'm going to die and resurrect. It's a beautiful story, right? The idea is simple. Jesus claimed to be God. He told everyone he was going to die and resurrect the idea. If we accept anything that Jesus said, then we have to accept everything he said because of the reality of his resurrection. It is the defense for every argument about him. If he died but didn't rise from the dead, then you win. We can forget about him and move on. But if he died and was resurrected, then we have to believe all that he said. You can't believe one thing and not all things. Because either he's crazy or he's not. The second thing about Jesus, this is beautiful, it opens the door, this resurrection opens the door for a new relationship with God for us. It opens up the door for a new relationship with God. Here's the deal. Why did Jesus come? Because he hated separation between him and you. He hated separation. He hated that your sin had so overtaken you that his holiness is like, I would like to, but because of the sin, I can't, so I will have to remove it. So Jesus came as a human being and he died in our place so that he could take the guilt of our sin. So it opened the door for all who believe to be in relationship with him. It opens the door for relationship with God. Man, the idea of family, relationship, it's not just relationship. It's like we, we get to enter into the family of God. I mean, don't miss what Randall was reading earlier from John. It says he te- Jesus comes to, to Mary. And you might miss this, but he says to them, he, she, he says to her, go to my brother's. Like, you know, it's the first time in Scripture that he calls them brothers. Why? Because he had changed everything about relationship and about family. Brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. He'd already been hanging out the sisters. He said, go to the brothers. They didn't come down to see me, but you did, right? It's huge. Hebrews of 2.11, both the one who makes men holy... And those who are made holy to us are the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call all of us brothers. To be brothers has powerful implications. It puts us on this kind of this, this certain level of equality with Jesus. Not the equality that we're God, right? Don't do that. Right? But the equality that we are part of the same family. It's not a work that you did. You couldn't put yourself in this family. You couldn't make that happen. It's the work that he did. It's the work that Jesus did, right? He says, no, 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 no. I want, you're no longer servants. You're no longer just friends. You are family. Remember he said later on, he says, I'm going to my father and your father. What? 
Are you serious? Oh my gosh, Jesus. Are you kidding me? You brought me into your family. That's never been done. I know, but I did it for you. I couldn't wait to, I guess my secret, I wanted you to be part of my family. No separation, right? Oh, God, you're so good, Jesus. Each of us, because of the resurrection, wouldn't be the case without it, but because of the resurrection, we have the ability to relate intimately, closely to the Father. If Jesus had not died, nothing would have changed. It required, or if he had just died, nothing would have changed. It required the resurrection. See these things, right? It's beautiful. We're part of the family, those of us who believe. And if he truly is God, he is who he said he was, which requires a response. Now, in the context of our world, obviously, there are lots of arguments and lots of people who say lots of things about Jesus and lots of tensions about Jesus and people just don't think about Jesus very much. And because they don't think about it, they just live in ignorance and ignorance is not bliss. You, you can't say, well, I'm ignorant about that, so I'm free to go. No, ignorance is, doesn't, give you, doesn't give you freedom. It doesn't give you a past, right? You can't live in ignorance. This is the truth right here, this idea of this tension we have to wrestle with, this argument against the resurrection. I'm going to give a couple of things as defense this morning. I want you to know these things. I want you to hear them. I want you to, just to, to bring them into you. The first argument made against Jesus actually is God, of Jesus not being who he said he was, was made by the Gnostics, that Jesus was just a ghost and not a real person. That Jesus was a ghost, just not a real person. In fact, historians believe it was Simon the sorcerer who could not really receive the fullness of the kingdom, so he created this alternate reality about about who Jesus was, that, hey, he, he, was really, he wasn't really a human being. He was just a spirit being. He was just a spirit being. And so, so the, the gospel writers recognized, said, well, this is, we can't let people believe this. And so what they write, they wrote stories about Jesus coming back. And what did he do? Come over here and see the scars and touch me. And he, what did he say? He says, I'm hungry. And so they went over and gave him fish, saying, all right, if he's really a ghost, what happens to ghosts to eat? They can't pick it up in the first place. They go straight through and hit the ground. It's a waste of a good piece of fish, right? Can I get an amen, right? And so in this moment, he takes the fish and he eats it. What happens? He goes, mm, that was really good, guys. It's been three days since I've eaten, right? That's a long time. No, he eats and the idea is saying, no, we touched him. He ate because he was a human being. Isn't it really interesting? It's really interesting here. The Gnostics were not able to say Jesus wasn't resurrected. They knew he was. They just had to pretend like it was spiritual in nature and not physical. They didn't have the ability to argue it didn't happen, even though they were living in the day. No, the only argument they could make was that it wasn't actually physical. It was just spiritual because, to be honest with you, some of them had seen him. And some of their friends had seen him. Number two, people in that day were just more simple-minded. Isn't that so arrogant of us, right? Oh, they're just simple-minded, don't have our education, things that we know today, mm-hmm, right? 
Are you kidding me? Greco-Roman world. Jews, right? This is like the, this is like the breeding ground of people that you've studied. Some guy named Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates. You ever heard of those people? They're smarter than me, right? So they're out there. We studied them. We still do modern-day philosophy. Like these are the people we're talking about. They were brilliant. Remember, excuse me, Paul, uh, Paul goes to Mars Hill in Greece, starts preaching Jesus. They're like, this is a great message, right? Really up until he starts preaching what? The resurrection of Jesus. They call him crazy. Some of them walk off and what do some do? And some believe because they said it's crazy that someone would talk about resurrection because we just don't believe in that. They're not simple minded. They're not given to the magical. They're not given to the mystical. They are just as big as a realist and those who love logic as we are today. There was nothing in Greco-Roman history that said resurrection. There honestly was nothing in the Old Testament that ever talked about Messiah and resurrection. That was not an expectation. That was nowhere on their radar screen. Resurrection, yeah. And they thought that was stupid, just like you would. If I told you I was going to die and be raised to new life in three days, you'd go, oh my gosh. Looney Ben. This is what you would do, to be honest. They felt the exact same way. The idea of resurrection from the dead of a single person was nowhere on the radar screen. It had never been taught anywhere in religion before. So they're not mystical. They're not magical. They're not simple-minded. They're brilliant. They did not believe in that. That was not the case. One of the third arguments is that it's just simply a made-up story. This is probably one people pick up the most in some form or fashion, right? It's just a made-up story, whether to make the disciples feel better because they're emotionally bruised in the moment that Jesus let them down, right? Or maybe, like, well, they made the story up so they could retain their power, kind of re- retain the influence and authority they had in people's lives or around them. Or they made up the story just uh, for whatever reason, right? But there is a problem with this idea of a made-up story. Number one is this, because there were eyewitnesses, we read that, 1 Corinthians 15, when, when Paul is writing, listen, guys, there are hundreds of eyewitnesses. If you don't believe me, just go talk to them. In fact, here's like, you probably gives out some of their names, so you can go talk to this person, this person, this person. They've all seen Jesus physically resurrected. Remember, the first heresy couldn't deny the resurrection. They just had to just make it up that it was only spiritual in nature and not physical. Like the day and age, there was, there was no way to deny the eyewitnesses and what they saw. They all had the exact same eyewitness account of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul, in essence, invited him. So you don't believe? Well, go talk to people who've seen him and talked to him, touched his body, saw his scars, who gave him fish to eat, probably something else, because he was here for several days, right? Number two, and I love this, like a problem with it being a made-up story is it's a problematic story. It's a very, very, very problematic story, and it's very simple. In the culture, and women, I apologize, but in the culture of Jesus' day, women had no voice. Women had no voice. Therefore, if you wanted to give credibility to a story, you would not make women the primary witness in the story. It just wouldn't make any sense. It's not logical. Every single person's a logical argument. All of you love logic. It's illogical to think this is the story that they would make up. A woman's testimony wasn't even admissible in a court of law. In the resurrection story, women, Randall read it, 
are the first to see Jesus and tell others that he is alive. Listen, if someone were going to create and make up a story, they never would have had women be the primary voice. They never would have had women be the very first ones that Jesus went to. It's a problematic story. The only possible explanation for why women would fill this role in the story, because it happened that way, right? It's true. There's no other logical explanation whatsoever. You can't find one. You can't create one. It's the only logical choice. N.T. Wright, the great theologian of our day, he said that the early critics, excuse me, the early writers, the early writers, excuse me, probably had a lot of pressure on them to change the story or to remove women from the story because all it would do would be to discredit it. So the third, third defense, right, is the empty tomb. To a made-up story, the problem would be, man, the defense is there's an empty tomb. Listen, it was like less than a couple of months and Peter got up and preached resurrection from the dead. Like, you recognize it's a story being told all around Jerusalem, right? Everyone's heard about, Jesus is no longer in the tomb. People would walk in. There was a real tomb. Jerusalem was not that big. They knew who the tomb belonged to. I guarantee you, people were like, we're setting up camp outside with mementos of little stones rolling away, right, to sell. But everyone was walking by. There's the, there's the tomb. Don't let the Roman guards see us. Oh, hell, Caesar, look at the tomb, right? Paul could not have preached an empty tomb unless there was one. Couldn't have. This first writing was probably 15 to 20 years, like I said, after resurrection. It's the message they've been preaching. He's just writing it down. No one in Jerusalem would have believed the preaching if the tomb wasn't actually empty. No one, by this point... Years later, there's still not a great explanation that anyone can give for an alternative. So it's very easy to preach a message that there's no alternative for. You see what I'm getting at? They're preaching a message and Rome can't do anything about it because there's no alternative except I don't know what happened. He was there and then he wasn't. What do you do with the empty tomb? The fourth defense. Let me see how I wrote this down. Unprecedented quick belief in resurrection for that number of followers. What do I mean by that? Let's leave that up there. It is unprecedented. This is, again, a logical historical argument. In history, it's unprecedented how quickly the followers in one sect or one religion immediately adopted something as outrageous as the resurrection. In their own words, his followers said they didn't land on this idea through debating and discussing. They were just telling others what they had seen themselves. Do you recognize within like two months, thousands of people, men, women, families, disciples, are following Jesus and all believing in the resurrection? Why? Because they all had experienced it and heard it firsthand from someone who had seen Jesus. Nowhere in history has this ever happened where that number of people, it's always a, usually a gradual process, gradual process, gradual process. Usually it begins with one oracle, one voice. You can think 
um, what's his name, Joseph Smith of Mormonism. You can think about Muhammad over here who for years preached this message and literally no one ever listened to him for a long, long, long time until all of a sudden, boom, it kind of took hold and then it blew up, right? But the idea was immediately everyone just believed the same thing and within just years they're all saying, yes, Christ was resurrected. What do you do with history? The next one. This is probably my favorite, so I'll put it last. So listen to this one if you're about to fall asleep. Stop. Here we go. Number one defense for me is the death of Jesus' followers. Blaise Pascal, you've all studied, once said, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. Because they won't recant. I believe those who say, I believe this. And then when the knife is there and they're standing there, he's like, no, I, I, I have to believe. Because here's the deal. One person may die for a lie, but not thousands. One person may die for a lie, but not thousands. Because when they're held with a gun today to their head, when they have a knife to their throat, when they have an axe sitting there and they have a saw, get ready to saw them in two, as Hebrews 11 and 12 talks about, they're going, no, no, I'm just kidding. It was a lie. It was a lie. We were just trying to be big, just pull a big practical joke on Rome. Right? Why would disciples say, no, no, no? Like, why would, why would they lie about it? Because all it got them was pain. All it got them was suffering. It didn't give them any money. It didn't give them any kind of power or authority in the government. It didn't do anything but get them killed. Is that a lie to, to, to believe? Is that a lie to live for? All of the disciples, all of the apostles died horrendously for their faith. People don't die for a lie. They don't die for a lie. You know there are more martyrs dying right now than ever died back then for their faith. And they're still dying for what they know to be true. Their faith the death of Jesus' followers to us should be something in defense for the resurrection that you need to reconcile with. Like, listen, you can sit all day long and pretend like this doesn't apply to you. But you're just lying to yourself. And you're believing a lie. Let's stop believing a lie. Because let me be honest with you, nothing good ever happens believing lies. So summed up, why did Christianity, these are questions you have to process. Why did Christianity, unlike any other religion in history, emerge so rapidly with such power? Why did a group who never would have imagined or believed in resurrection automatically, all at the same time, change everything they held true and shift to the belief in resurrection of Jesus? How do we account for no body in the tomb and hundreds of eyewitnesses who, when pressured to stand up for their beliefs or risk death, didn't recant when they could have to save their own life? There is no reason to risk your life if there's nothing true about your belief. So I'll start, I end where I began. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with the resurrection? It's not okay to sit there in ignorance and just pretend like, ah, oh, blah, 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 it didn't happen. I'm not going to think about it because that's what you do. That's what we do. Whether you're a believer in, in Jesus or not, every day we say, resurrection. 
is real and it impacts my life. Because if he truly is the Lord, then it changes how I live. C.S. Lewis, in asking the question, what do you do with Jesus? In his book, Mere Christianity, comes out in page 55 and 56 and says this. I'm just going to read it to you and you can follow along on the screen. What do you do with Jesus? He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. They say this, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher, right? He'd either be a lunatic on the level with the man he says is a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and, and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral or a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and that he is God. What do you do with Jesus? What do you do with the resurrection? Let's pray. Father, we come this morning, we thank you, Jesus, for the resurrection. And Father, we come with great sobriety, recognizing, Lord, that, man, the resurrection is a really big deal. It impacts us in a very real and very powerful way. I want to pray, Jesus, first, Lord, just for those who are here, God, I pray just a great out of compassion and mercy, Jesus, that you would awaken us, Lord, to the reality of your great love for us, that you desire to call us family. I pray, Jesus, today that you would take those who have questions about Jesus, questions that if they're really honest, they would say they have, even they don't think about them very much. And I pray today, God, the question about what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with him? What are you going to do with the resurrection? I pray, Jesus, that it would be incessant in them all week to the point where they have to look at life and death and answer the question. We pray today for salvation, Jesus. Those who are far off, that they would come near. Lord, I'm asking that you would come with the power of your love today and those who would have even given you an inch to get in, that you would come in and take a mile. That you would reveal yourself, that you would cause a person to be unsettled, Lord. We pray for a holy unsettling in Jesus' name. We pray for awakening. We pray for revival in the hearts of each human being here in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I invite you to respond. There are 
ways we always respond at Vintage. One, we do have our offering baskets here in that little giving box back there in a giving kiosk outside. If you came this morning as Vintage family prepared to give tithes and offerings, that's where they go. So you're just in the middle of worship, you'd come up and place those here. And if you brought your commitment card this morning, you can stick it in here too or in that little box right there. Two, we have communion available on both sides. There's a lot of people here this morning. And so let's not do the awkward thing where we like wrap her around and try to figure out who's in line. Let's just like have the line be no longer than halfway down this aisle. Person takes and someone else gets up, right? And let's just kind of create that, keep that line going. I invite you to do this. We're family. So invite the people behind you to take communion with you. That'd be fun, right? They're part of your spiritual family. Just invite them to come do that with you. This morning, we have ministry teams on both sides. What are these people doing? Why are they standing up at the front on Easter morning? That's kind of awkward. Well, it's real simple. They love God and they love people. And they simply want to pray for you about anything going on in your life. Do you need prayer for healing? Do you have struggling in your marriage? Struggling with addiction? Do you want someone to pray for you? Do you just want someone to pray for you? Do you just want to pray for the love of Jesus to be awakened in your heart? Well, the great thing is this morning, let's say you don't know Jesus. They do, and they can introduce you to him. I'll be sitting up here. If you want to come find me, sit next to me. I'd be happy to. Jesus and I are super tight. I'd love to introduce you to him. He's awesome. He's hilarious. He is fun. He is convicting and tells me things that are going to kill me and hurt me, so he lets me know in advance so I don't do those things. It's just what he does. So if you don't know him and want to know him this morning, I would love to introduce you to him and what it requires of you to make that happen. So here's what we're going to do. You respond as the Lord leads. We're going to sing a song. It's good. Here's what's going to happen. Songs will start out slow, and then it's going to get super energetic, and people are going to stand up. You can stand up with them and sing, or you can stay seated. It doesn't really matter. I'm going to come back up in a bit, and I'm going to pray us out. So at that point, that'll be when you're released to go do your Easter stuff. So at that point, you just respond as the Lord leads right now. I'll come back up in a minute.